This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 226. I got to hang out with Kobe Campbell to dive into her first book, Why Am I Like This? How to Break Cycles, Heal from Trauma, and Restore Your Faith. Y'all, this conversation, it was so fun to have and to dive into, really at the crux of doing this work of raising emotionally intelligent humans, is diving into our own work of who am I? What am I coming to the table with? What am I bringing from my childhood? And how do I build tools and awareness so that I can regulate and respond with intention? So many of us did not grow up with these tools for emotional intelligence, and we're trying to build a tiny human's toolbox alongside our own, and it's tough. Kobe and I dive into what this looks like in this episode. It is pure gold. Go snag her book right now, Why Am I Like This? How to Break Cycles, Heal from Trauma, and Restore Your Faith. Before we dive into this episode, I want to let you know that we have our Seed Teacher Virtual Summit starting on Monday, April 10th. It is April 10th, 11th, and 12th. It is a free summit where you get to learn from experts in the field of early ed. There are 18 total workshops. They are straight fire. I had an absolute blast hanging out with these experts, and it's all coming to you for free. Head on over to seedandso.org slash summit to sign up now. All right, folks, let's dive in. Hey there, I'm Alyssa Blass Campbell. I'm a mom with a master's degree in early childhood education and co-creator of the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method. I'm here to walk alongside you through the messy, vulnerable parts of being humans raising other humans with deep thoughts and actionable tips. Let's dive in together. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Voices of Your Village. Today, I get to hang out with author, hello, new author, Kobe (laughs) Campbell. She's a Charlotte-based licensed trauma therapist, writer, and speaker with a kind, compassionate, and energetic spirit. She helps people heal from their past and live lives they love. She's the founder of the Healing Circle Therapy and Wellness Center in Charlotte, North Carolina, and hosts the Healing Circle podcast with her husband, Kyle And they have two tiny humans, four and two, and she's got a new book coming out, her first book, Why Am I Like This? How to Break Cycles, Heal from Trauma, and Restore Your Faith. Kobe, hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited because this is, I mean, gosh, do we ever need this conversation? Like trauma and triggers it's all around us, right? Mm -hmm. It's all around us. And it drives our day to day all the time. I think in ways we're often unaware of. So thank you for writing this book, first of all. Thank you. Yeah. And I want to first chat about like trauma, right? I I think it's a big Mm -hmm. word. It's one that's really buzzwordy. It's shared a lot. 
For what sure. does it mean? So the word trauma literally translates to wound. Mm. And I think that that is the best way that we can approach the conversation about trauma because so many people are looking for a big, lofty, super specific um, definition. But the truth is trauma is deeply personal, deeply contextual. What wounds one person may not affect another and what doesn't affect another person may deeply wound another. And I think that we really get the permission to approach our wounds with a sense of care and kindness when we recognize that trauma is simply a wound from the past that affects our present. Oh, I think that's so helpful because I I feel like that helps us not try to figure someone else's trauma out. Or I can find myself being like, oh yeah, that happened to me. It like didn't feel like a big deal for me. And almost dismissing somebody else's experience. Even if externally, I don't say it inside. Sometimes I can find myself in that dismissive space. And Mm -hmm. I think that's so helpful to think about that. Like their wound might not be my wound and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. The wounds are different and everyone heals differently. Mm. Right. So someone, two people might get a cold, uh, say me and my husband, our kids with all their germs may give us a cold. I may have it for a week and a half and he may just have the sniffle for two days. Sure. Like, but he's going to be on the couch for those two days. And oh yeah. He's gonna be, he definitely can't do anything. He can't do yeah. anything. He can't <laughs> sure. get the remote, can't get a cup of water, nothing. <laughs> um, and so, uh, Okay. That is so helpful. I love that frame of reference as we go into this with like, and everyone heals differently. Mm -hmm. When we're looking at trauma, I I think for me, what is the most glaring is how it shows up in parenthood in ways I, just when I'm like, oh yeah, no, I've dealt with that thing. And then all of a sudden something happens in parenthood and here comes a trigger and now I'm dysregulated. And I didn't see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you never do. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and so let's dive into what does it look like to build awareness of our triggers and our dysregulation? Yeah, I think that all awareness has to start with curiosity instead of judgment, right? Like it has to be about us feeling the emotion, feeling the impulse that the emotion gives us. And obviously with time, slowly learning how to not act on the impulses, right? Because when my kid screeches at the top of his lungs, my first impulse is to tell him to be quiet. Inside voices, inside voices, please. Okay, because I am feeling a distress internally that I'm immediately discharging. Now that distress might be just because I'm sensitive to sound, which I am, but that distress is also a trigger that's tied to, as a kid, I wasn't allowed to be loud like that. And so the kid in me is like, stop. This is the context of trouble. This is the context of rejection. And because I don't want you to know rejection, I don't want you to do this thing, right? Mm -hmm. Our children are mirrors of the moments of the past we haven't processed yet. I need you to say that sentence about rejection again, because I don't Mm. want you to know rejection. Sorry, say it again. I need it. I need it. Yeah, (laughs) I need it on a sign. I need it here in my office. I need it in my life. (laughs) Give it to me. I I don't think I'll get it perfectly, but you know, my kid screams, I'm telling, and I'm like shushing them immediately. I'm telling them this is the context of rejection. Mm -hmm. This is the context of isolation because that's what that was my lived experience. If you're loud, you're rejected, you're sent to your room. If you're loud, you're screamed at. If you're loud, you're hit. If you're loud, you will experience pain. And so there is like a dual response, one that is out of my own pain, but also one that's out of protection for them. Because I'm like, I don't want you to experience that rejection. I don't want you to experience that pain. So be quiet because it's causing me distress because I also feel like I'm re-experiencing it and I don't want you to experience it for the first time. Yes. Okay. Yes. This is so huge in the world of triggers, what you're talking about right now. I was just having a conversation with one of my best friends the other day, and we were talking about how her child is in childcare in a preschool classroom and it doesn't want to go and Mm. was saying like the other kids are really into like big body play and like rough and tumble stuff. And that's not how her tiny human likes to play. And there isn't like a good matchup right now in the, in the classroom for her. 
and in terms of like types of play. And she was like, oh my gosh, I just feel this like part of me that wants her to feel included in all the things that mm. doesn't want her to feel other, that doesn't want her to feel excluded or like she doesn't belong. And I immediately was like, oh, when did that start happening for you? Like, mm. when did you do? and yep. she was like, oh shit. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's so real, right? That like it it's us in that projection of like, I can save them from experiencing this hard thing that I experienced and I don't want them to have. Yeah. Yep. And if we don't process those moments for ourselves, we are actually going to inflict the same pain on our children that we spend our entire lives trying to avoid. Sure. We expose them to it early and tell ourselves that we're protecting them from it when they are completely different people. They are their own tiny little humans. And there may have been a world where they didn't experience exactly what you experience. But now because you were triggered and didn't process it, they did experience it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is like, I mean, my kid for me has exposed through triggering me, you know, as, as, People do, not just tiny humans, people do. Um, he's exposed to me the silent rules that I live by mm-hmm. that I had no clue existed. What does that mean? There were rules like do not inconvenience people, oh. do not be too loud, mm-hmm. do not draw attention, do not act, do not seem needy, do not be whiny, do not let people see that you're vulnerable. And all of those narratives, all of those stories were stories that I was living inside of. And there were stories that were from my own past trauma. And there were the silent rules and kids come in and there are no rules. And so I couldn't understand why my kid couldn't get, these are the rules. Well, he couldn't get that these are the rules because he didn't live through my trauma, right? Right. And the truth was the rules I was living by aren't actually rules. Sure, right, 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 right. Well, they were were rules for safety and love and connection and value for you and your experience, right? And so when we're Mm -hmm. doing this, high maintenance was like the last thing in the world. There's a part of me that would rather die than be high maintenance or have needs. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up in a large family of four siblings, in a low income family and having needs being needy was not how you yeah. showed love. It wasn't how you received yeah. love. That's for sure. And, yeah. um, I, I find this now that a, allowing myself to have needs is hard, but my kid's so good at allowing himself to have needs. He's so good yep. at saying, I need help. He's so good at crying and saying like something's wrong, right? Like he's yeah. so good at that advocacy as long as I don't shut it down. As long yeah. as I don't pop in and stop him from advocating for his needs and for himself and creating that same story pattern. Now, yeah. what's so hard though, it's like, I feel like I, I can get there sometimes for him, right? Where like, he was just recently at the flu. And so him having needs, I'm like, yeah, totally. Like I, growing up, I did not have a parent who would like snuggle me or make sure I had snacks or whatever. They would just make sure you can be sick, like in your room, mm-hmm. we'll bring you water and like, that's mm-hmm. it. Let me know if you need anything. Uh, but yeah. also like, I'm going to send you a lot of signs that like, don't let me know if you need anything. Um, yeah. And just, just get, get it yourself. And, uh, so I was like, okay, I can like do this for him. And I'm like feeling like I'm on top of the world. And we were on vacation at the time with my parents actually. And so all of a sudden I started to see like their responses to him having needs and being needy. And I was like, oh, I want, I want them to love him. Mm. And if I want them to love him, he can't be needy. Yeah. He was surfacing again. And I was like, oh, yikes. What is, can you walk us through the power of when we're doing this healing for ourselves? Yeah. Rather than trying to avoid these hard things for our kids, what does it look like to provide them with maybe what we needed to hear or receive? Yeah. I mean, that example is so powerful because it's a reminder that when we have childhood trauma, 
in the specific context in which we experience those wounds, we bring that childhood mindset into adult situations and we forget to appropriately um, distribute responsibility, right? Because as a child, we didn't feel like we had the ability to um, take hold of the situation. And there really was a context in which our parents were not going to change for our needs, right? But now you're an adult and now it's not your child's responsibility to change, to be loved by an adult. It's the adult's responsibility to acquiesce to the needs of the child to meet them where they are, right? And so like, I think a huge part of the trauma work is stepping back and saying this, am I viewing this situation through my wounded child mind or am I viewing this as the present adults that I am, right? And whichever one that is, you might still feel distress. Like either one is still going to bring a sense of distress. Um, But I think it's important for parents to be able to say, is this about me or is this about my child? Mm -hmm. That was huge for me. Like this actually has nothing to do with my son. He is happy. He's fine. He's free. He's liberated. He's living his best life. (laughs) I... I'm the one who is anxious because of the implications of his behaviors in relationship to people that I had painful and wounding moments with, right? And part of trauma is believing that people won't change, right? There's a, a recapitulation in our brain that like, this is how it is. 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 But I know someone listening right now has had the moment I've had where my parents did not grow up saying, I love you. You're so sweet. And now my parents are like kissing my kids on the cheeks and telling them they're sweet and all of this. And it wasn't always like that, but it became that because I made clear that it was not my child's responsibility. And if they cared about the connection between my child and them, that they would need to make adjustments. Right. And, um, I think that's at the core of all trauma healing is knowing that adjustments have to be made for congruent and free living. Totally. Yes. And I also, oh my gosh, so many things that I like see my parents do as grandparents. And I'm like, where was that? I'm like, <laughs> what? Excuse oh me? my gosh. <laughs> like um, you, you popped me on the hand all the time. And now you're sure. telling me like, don't pop him, leave him alone. Sure. Like it's fun. My parents were my, my catalyst into revolutionizing how I parent. Yeah. You know, it was the pandemic. I was pregnant and I had like a two-year-old and I was just kind of like, oh my God, I'm dying. What's happening? I'm like morning sickness, kids, all the things. And like my son was having a hard time and we were like, okay, maybe we'll pop him on the hand, but then we'll explain to him why we're popping him. We were like trying to figure out what worked for us. And my parents, king and queen poppers, (laughs) were were like, don't pop your kids. It'll make them lose trust with you. They said that. Yeah, wow. And I was like, uh, okay. And that's really what helped me take the nosedive into, okay, then how do I connect with my kid while guiding them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for me, one of those, one of the things I had to accept was like, what if they don't change? You know, like what, mm, yes. if, what if there isn't change there in their yep. behavior? Yep. And the reality that my child's parents are me and my husband. They're not oh my, my grandparents, right? The grandparents are not his parents. Yeah. And so the relationship that I have with my parents is as my primary caregivers. He, I get to write a different story for him. If yep. my parents never change a single thing from my, yep. and, and this isn't like a bash my, like, they did yeah. so many incredible things yeah. and like every single human walking this planet right now, they aren't perfect. And so with the imperfections, like if I, if that I have so much power in yeah. rewriting stories yeah. for him, yep. for my little guy and they don't have to. Yeah. Yep. That is, and that is what it looks like when we take responsibility for our lives, which is like, you can't even begin to do trauma work without coming to the place where you say, this is my life. 
Mm -hmm. right? Because it's so easy to be controlled by the voices of the past, the voices of the people around you. And saying this is my life does not mean you're not affected by those voices. It doesn't mean you don't hear them. It doesn't mean that those voices don't deeply hurt, you know, and affect your everyday um, emotional state, right? But when we get to a place where we say, this is my responsibility. My husband says this all the time. He says, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Yes. I love it. Happen to you because you did something wrong, but now you do have to do something to make it right. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, that felt empowering. Yeah. Right. To say, like, I get to write a different story for him if I'm willing to do the work. Yeah. Yep. And as you write a different story for him, you're writing a different story for yourself. A hundred percent. Like reparenting our children well is reparenting ourselves. Parenting our children well is stepping into the authority we didn't have as kids, stepping into the voice that was silenced as children, stepping into the position of freedom and protection of that freedom that we didn't have in the past. And so I think that is why, like, you know, the work that you do is so incredibly powerful because there's no way for us to serve our kids well without it also transforming our own hearts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for me, Labine, It's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot voices. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Have you ever been like scrolling the internet and there's all these like tools for calming your child and how to regulate and whatever and you try them and your child just gets amped up or that doesn't work or you find yourself in these cycles where it's like epic meltdown try to come back from it and you just feel like you're putting out fires all day long if this is you you aren't alone and we collaborated with an occupational therapist to create our sensory profile quiz This is gonna help you learn about what helps your child regulate, what's happening in their unique nervous system. We are all different and figuring out what you're sensitive to or what helps you regulate is the key for actually doing this work, for getting to a regulated state, for having tools for calming down, for having tools for regulation. Head on over www.seedquiz.com to take the quiz for free. You can take it as many times as you like for as many humans as you'd like. And we will deliver results right to your inbox to get you kickstarted on this journey. Seedquiz.com. Yeah, it's so true. And like, 
And every time I let him know, I love you when you have needs. I love you when you're having a hard time. I'm letting tiny human Alyssa know that, right? Yeah. She's getting a big old hug and hearing what she didn't get to hear. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, Mm. How is trauma processed in our bodies? Because I feel like this is a conversation that's really coming to the forefront right now. And I think it's so powerful. And again, for me, feels empowering to be able to dive into. Oh my goodness. So this is... As a therapist, I'll say this is like a, I could, it's like a whole other podcast, but I'll like, (laughs) I'll condense it. Um, So all of our experiences deeply affect our nervous system, our autonomic nervous system, excuse me, our autonomic nervous system is split up into the sympathetic, which is the fight flight and the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest. In a perfect world, huge finger quotations, these two systems are working together beautifully, right? They're complementing each other. They're helping us stay safe while helping us stay connected and learn new things. They're helping us um, protect ourselves while also helping us to experience laughter and joy and play and silliness, right? Uh, Fight or flight um, helps us notice when there's danger and when we need to back away or when we need to assert ourselves. And then the rest and digest system lets us just be human and be free and be good as we are, right? But what happens when we experience trauma is um, the sympathetic nervous system is like the alarm of a house and it gets stuck on. So the point of an alarm is to let you know when danger is imminent, right? To let you know someone's breaking into the house, okay? You need to get up, get your firearms, whatever you need to do, get yourself together to protect yourself and to be aware that there's danger before you. But could you imagine living in a house where your house alarm is always going off? Yeah. Yeah. I've lived in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can't imagine. I've uh-huh. lived in it. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's incredibly distressing just because it's quite literally overwhelming. The mm-hmm. idea that the alarm is going off is overwhelming. And on a biological level, that alarm going off is a constant coursing of hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. And those hormones are actually only designed to be released in our bodies in small bursts. Mm-hmm. Right. They're not supposed to be um, released with longevity. Um, and so the same way alarm is not supposed to be going off all the time, because if an alarm is going off all the time, how do you know when you're actually in danger and when you're not? Mm-hmm. Right. It leaves you in a place of constant perpetual anxiety because you never know if the alarm is going off because someone's at the door or if the alarm's going off because it's just broken. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it it um, kind of pulls you out of reality and disorients you. Um, so when adrenaline and cortisol are pumping all the time, one, it weakens your immune system. It weakens your ability to process emotions. It activates the fear centers of the brain and the fear centers of the brain shut off the part of the brain that helps us learn and consolidate information from short-term memory to long-term memory. Um, And that's so important for parents to know. That's just like a snippet. Um, It's so important for parents to know because the main question I get when I say all this information is, okay, the alarm system's on. I am anxious all the time. I am on edge all the time. I can't sleep. I can't think. I can't concentrate. I can't remember anything. How do I turn it off? Mm -hmm. We turn it off with safety. Mm -hmm. And safety, just like trauma, is deeply personal and deeply contextual. That's important for us to know as parents. It's important for us to know as humans, right? So the thing about safety is because it's so contextual and so personal, no one can define what safety is for us but us. That's important because the same is true for our children. We can't just be like, oh, you're okay, you're fine. If our kids don't feel safe, telling them that they are safe does not make them feel safe. Never in the history of your safe if I felt safer. Never. That needs to be on a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. Truly never. And so the reality is safety has to come from honesty and it has to come from belief. It has to come from a place of like, the truth is, I don't feel safe around these type of people. Mm-hmm. And so if I want to even gain the resources to be a more present parent, to be um, a more caring present to a parent, to be someone who can truly connect with my kid, you can't connect with your kid until you feel safe. So you have to understand the value of safety in your own life 
so that you can have that rest and digest come back on in appropriate times. And so that when you learn information, you can actually consolidate it and it can be a mental resource that you can draw from. The same is true of our children. Mm -hmm. We can't make them feel safe, right? And what's so hard about safety is the idea of safety defers power. Our children get the power to tell us what makes them feel safe. And we have to believe them. A hundred percent. And it might conflict with what we envision it would be, right? Like yes. that part is the hard part for me. My son and I have very different nervous systems. Yep. And for him, one of the keys to safety is validation and understanding that somebody is acknowledging his experience starts Mm. to turn the alarms off for him. Right. So if, whereas like for me, I initially it's more physical, like I will need to move my body or I need a hug or like, I need that sensory regulation. Yep. And for him, that like understanding validation connection is what first starts to turn his alarm off. So if yep. something happens and I can just reiterate what happened without saying like, yeah, and it makes sense that you yeah, hit me across the face like that. I don't have to add in, but I can just say yeah. like, oh, man, you really wanted to move that just this morning. You really wanted to line up all the spices to make a train. And when you pushed that one, it fell off the table and it broke on the ground. And that was really scary. Yeah. And I'm not adding in there. And I had told you 7,000 times to <laughs> not push those over because I was glass and it was going to break. Right. Like yeah. I don't need that in there. And right this now. is what happens. Correct. To listen. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah. Um, you brought it up on yourself. Those are things mm-hmm. that go on inside. But like in the moment, just validating that for him turns yeah. his alarm bells off. And when we learned that about him, it made finding that homeostasis easier. But yeah. it, for me, still in the moment, doesn't always feel like my go-to because it's different than how I usually receive safety. Yep. 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 And we, we cannot even embark on the journey of healing our trauma, understanding the reality of how our trauma impacts us or applying the skills that we're trying to gain without safety. Sure. And a lot of us are just kind of like, as we're activated, we're panicking and we're just chugging information. We're like, give me all the information, give me all the information. And then the moments come for us to apply the information and we try to make a withdrawal and the safety deposit box is empty. Correct. Because we didn't learn that information from a place of safety. We learned it from a place of reactive panic and terror right? Mm-hmm. Like this sense of like, oh my gosh, things are terrible and, and I'm just terrified and my kid's going to turn out to be horrible and bite someone in the face if they're 18 years sure. old if I don't fix this right now, <laughs> right? So like we're panicking. We've been so living inside my head. <laughs> no, that spiral happened so fast for me. <laughs> so fast. With like two seconds, maybe 1.5, like you mm-hmm. bit me and now I see you biting, you know, another child in the face. Yeah in high school. And so the reality is like, we have to prioritize safety. Safety has to be at the foundation of the way we live. Yeah. Of the way. I I have a question for you. I think for Mm -hmm. me, one of the biggest game changers, I I lived with anxiety for a really long time. I had, Mm -hmm. um, I guess trigger warning here for folks. Mm -hmm. I was raped when I was 14 and Mm -hmm. I didn't have a safe space. Thank you. I didn't have a safe space to turn to with that. And So I was living in, I, dissociation is the name of the game for me. Like I can do it like it's nobody's business. And so I was on the surface, straight A student, president of student council, a star athlete, blah, 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 blah. And inside I was drowning. Right. Um, and I found myself late teens, early twenties, like living in a state of anxiety. Yeah. And I, the key for me in getting out of that was actually learning how to allow fear yeah. to exist because yes. I, I was so used to living in fear and trying to mm-hmm. just get out of it. And it was like yeah. quicksand, right? Like the yeah. more I coping mechanism my way out of fear, the deeper I went into it. Yeah. And I had to find this balance of like allowing fear and then asking myself, what would happen if, Yeah. and 
even entertaining that idea of yep. what would happen if was huge for me. Like, and, and now it transforms to like parenthood. We're on this vacation. Respect was huge in my household growing up, huge manners, yeah. all that jazz. And we have a different approach to it as parents now. And in, in my husband and I, and we're on this vacation and my dad is like withholding something because my husband, he's like, you can say please for it. And I just like felt so like immediately I was like, he's rude. He's going to be a little brat. Like he's going to go down the road. And like these skills are skills. I want him to know. I do want him to be grateful when he receives something. I do want him to ask kindly for things. And then eventually got to a place of like, oh, I actually, I am in a different space now. I can advocate for him and like got there, but immediately spiraled down to like, Uh and like, that's how it shows up for me now. It's Mm -hmm. not as much of like, I'm living in this state of anxiety all the time, but like I can jump into it real fast when I'm triggered from childhood. Um, But so I'm curious to hear from you around like, when you are in that space, like, what does it look like to cultivate safety, whether you're living in that state of anxiety or you're like, like me with the respect thing where, oh, now I'm triggered. And how do I find safety? What are a few ways that, and I know it'll be different for everybody, but what are a Mm -hmm. few ways people might find safety? Yeah. You know, I think your example, thank you so much for sharing that. It's so powerful because safety is not the absence of distress. I think that's something that like we we think like safe means there's no danger. Sure. Safe doesn't mean there's no distress. And sometimes the safest place we can be is close to the emotions that are difficult to feel mm-hmm. and safe enough to know that we can get close to those emotions without being in danger. A hundred percent. Right. And I think that when we get close to those emotions without the idea of danger, we begin to shoo off just like the unhelpful and fake narratives that tell us that acknowledging an emotion is the same thing as indulging an emotion. Mm-hmm. Right. That acknowledging and connecting to fear means being consumed by fear and then living a fearful life. Right. Yes, and the like, opposite. yeah, absolutely. I, like, a lot of our anxiety is because we're constantly trying to run away from emotions that we've labeled as negative when really there are no negative emotions. There are emotions that are harder to process and deal with, and there are emotions that are easier to process and deal with. And so I think that safety looks like, uh, for me, um, I feel like a natural byproduct of safety is courage. Mm. And so I always ask myself, in what environment would I feel most courageous? Would I feel most free to do something different? Would I feel most free to try something I've been wanting to try, but like maybe felt a little bit nervous? Um, and courage is, you know, is persistence in the face of distress, but, and there can be danger at the end of, you know, at the other end of whatever we choose to be courageous about, but is about having a sense of assurance that danger is not going to, um, consume us. Right. And so like, I think safety is asking yourself, what environments do I feel a sense of peace, but also a sense of peace that can lead me into courage. I'm not talking about avoidance. Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes avoidance for a season is okay. Right. If we're overstimulated, we might need to avoid for a little bit. Like if my kid is like, I don't know what it is about screams. I'm waiting for the science to come out. Two minutes of screens turns into three hours of dysregulation for my child. I don't mm. understand what it is. Um, and it's probably true of me too. And I just ignore it in my body because I'm used to it. And I have to do it. <laughs> but, you know, like just thinking like, okay, what environments allow me to feel a measure of peace that gives me courage? And courage isn't always just action. It can be an action. It takes a lot of courage for me to rest. Mm, it's courage for me to cancel sessions and say actually I'm not going to make that meeting it takes courage to cancel on someone that I've planned to do something with because today I'm just too overwhelmed you know and so I think that when we think about environments um, that give us peace and allow us to be regulated it's important for us again it's contextual because for someone courage might be okay I'm going to step out and for someone else courage might be like I'm not doing anything you know but asking ourselves, what are the contexts in which I feel enough peace to do or not do something because I want to and not because I feel like I have to? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. 
Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck and now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it launching in january what happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it we talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky gluey sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity we hear about their journeys their successes their challenges and even their bougie coffee shop orders So, join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. I, like, can't stop feeling the connection to what you were saying about the emotions that like distress or in, uh, in our work, we refer to it as dysregulation, but Mm -hmm. that it, the, you can have both safety and dysregulation at the same time. Yeah. And when we were creating the set method, so my work is based on, we researched across the U S we have five phases of emotion processing and number three is security. And that's exactly what it is. It's a, it's, this security in feeling your feeling without trying to make it go away. And mm. I think for so many of us with these labels of like, am I supposed to feel this? Is it a bad feeling or a good feeling, right? These labels on feelings then lead us to living in this state of dysregulation because we're trying, we're, we're trying to not feel that. Mm-hmm. Right. And a friend of mine just the other day texted me, she's been in a, trying to conceive um space and journey in her life and she was like oh my period just like snuck up on me and I thought it wasn't coming and it was a few days late and now like man I thought this was gonna be it and Mm. um our folks at seed know I had a a a long trying to conceive journey with some miscarriages in there and I was like I just like know that feeling and my response to her was I hope that you allow yourself some time to grieve what you had just envisioned to make space for what is yeah. And she was like, oh my gosh, I needed that grief reminder. But I yeah. think it's one of those things where we're like, what am I grieving? Like mm-hmm. I didn't lose something or whatever. Right. Like, and I, it's one of those emotions. I think we don't allow ourselves to experience. Oh my goodness. I, yes, I have an entire chapter on my book about grief. Oh, entire I love chapter. that. Can you give me quickly, like kind of the breakdown of like, what's the structure of your book? What can we look forward to within it? Yeah, well, you know, I think the structure of the book really walks through, um, it It mirrors my client experience, people being like, I want to stop doing this, or I want to start doing this, and I've tried everything, and it's not working, so now I'm in therapy because I'm like, why can't I change? Sure. And then, you know, we slowly got to get into how, like, the everyday patterns we struggle to change are tied to the past pain we haven't processed, right? And so walking through that and helping them understand um, this book walks through a lot of perspectives of faith, of how, you know, many people of faith feel like, I'm not allowed to feel emotion. It is bad for me to feel emotion. God is mad at me. God is upset with me. And just walking them through, like, no. 
that's not true. Let's walk through the patterns and the past moment and the negative core beliefs that come from your trauma, which is like the lies, the stories and the lies that we live inside of. Um, let's talk through triggers. And then the first part of the book is about like, hey, what happened to you? And the second half of the book is how we heal ourselves. And uh, the first chapter of the second half of the book goes through my clients always ask like, okay, so what do I do about all this? Okay. What do I do? What do I do? And, you know, in that case, they already have a sense of safety with me. I would usually say safety, but safety starts, you know, we have that relationship in therapy, but I say we grieve Mm -hmm. before we try to gain another thing, fix another thing, tweak another thing, cut another thing off. We grieve that we had to go through this in the first place. Not that we had to, that we did go through it. Mm-hmm. We grieve what we thought we would get. We grieve what we deserved. We grieve what we expected but never came. We grieve all of that and we let ourselves grieve it because I don't think we realize enough that grief is going to give us the resource for the journey ahead of us, right? The sadness and the anger for the things we've experienced directly correlate to the value that we have for ourselves. And a lot of us are trying to skip over grief just because, you know, culturally it's don't be angry, don't be sad, you're inconveniencing everybody, you're being a bore, you know, you're you're bringing the vibe down. We've heard all those things before, but like anger is an emotion that communicates that something was worthy of protection. Mm. The more acquainted we are with anger and our stories, the more acquainted we become with our self-worth. Yes, yes. Oh, I love that you have a whole chapter on grief. And I love that that's how this starts out. That personally for me has been huge in healing. Mm, yeah. Um, and learning how to grieve. Like, what does yeah. that look like? How do you yeah. do that in practice? Oh my um, gosh, yes. And you know who's so good at it is kids. Kids are fantastic at grieving. Like, yes. I when we were researching the set method, we had this little guy and he, he was like four, three or four. And when things didn't go the way that he planned, he would constantly say, he would say, that wasn't my expectation. And I was like, oh my God, I love you. And I love that. And I'm going (laughs) to borrow that. Like, that's incredible. That wasn't my expectation. And that really was what so much of it broke down to, whether he was disappointed, he was sad, he was mad, he was scared. He expected something and something else was happening or happened. Yep. And it was like a part of his grief process, right? Of uh-huh. like grieving what he anticipated to allow for what was. Absolutely. And it's so powerful and we often skip over it. Yeah. And I also think that's why kids can move on so quickly. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. My son can have a <laughs> intense meltdown. That's not what I wanted. That's not what I wanted all the things and we connect and we let him know that really sucks. He thought you were going to get this. You can't get that. We can't find Blinky, all the things. He may have some puff for a little bit. And then he's like, mommy, can I have some chocolate milk? (laughs) 100%. He moves on because he's not, there's not this latent grief that's weaved in his everyday experience. Like he makes room for it. He feels it in the fullness of its intensity. And then he moves on. And that's not to say that every single situation should be like that. But I wonder what it would look like if we literally allotted time to just grieve. Mm -hmm. I wonder how many of us wouldn't feel so guilty or sad or melancholy in moments of celebration if we would have just given grief its time. Yeah, it's been a game changer for me. And I notice, I notice such a difference when I allow it. Yeah. And when I don't, and when I feel like I'm stuck in something or it keeps coming up or I can't get out of it or whatever, that's when I'm like, oh, what have I not grieved? Yeah. Oh man, this is so rad. I'm so jazzed to get my hands on a copy of your book. Um, (laughs) Can you repeat the title for us and let folks know where they can follow you and find your book and find all your stuff, podcast, all that jazz? Yes, absolutely. So the book is called Why Am I Like This? How to Break Cycles, Heal from Trauma, and Restore Your Faith. And honestly, this book is a book that when I wrote it changed my own life. 
You know, I sat inside of the same Starbucks every single morning for months and just like wept till snot came out of my nose as I wrote this stuff because the same way that as we parent other people that we are healed, I think writing this book was just as healing for me as I hope it is for the readers. And so um, I'm just so excited about it. You know, I've talked a ton on my social media about getting this book out there. Could you imagine 10,000 people whose lives are changed because they feel the permission to grieve. 10,000 people who are ready to deal with the past so they can live in the present. 10,000 people who are ready to feel a sense of safety so they can connect with themselves and their children. And so I have a wild, crazy goal of this book getting on the New York Times bestseller list and a wild, crazy goal of this book being in the hands of 10,000 people by April 4th. And I'm so excited about it. If you want to follow my journey and be connected to me, you can follow me on all social medias, Instagram, TikTok, all the things at Kobe Campbell underscore. So at K-O-B-E and then Campbell like the soup underscore. Campbell like the soup is also how I tell people about my last name. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people are (laughs) thrown by the B or by the P. They're like, what? (laughs) Oh, I love it. And the power of it, you know, you say 10,000 people and I'm like, man, can you imagine a mm. world? That's like how I feel about, you know, our tagline here is the future is emotionally intelligent. At yes. I'm just like, can you imagine truly a world where your boss, your best friend, your, yep. coach, your teacher, your yep. nurse, your mom, your whatever, like that they've done this healing work or actively doing this healing work and can show up as a more regulated adult to connect with you and this cycle breaking that can happen. Oh my goodness. It's so powerful. You are so powerful. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for being here for this conversation and for doing this work with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the transcript at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community over on Instagram hanging out every day with more free content? Come join us at seed.and.so. Take a screenshot of you tuning in, share it on the gram, and tag seed.and.so to let me know your key takeaway. If you're digging this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We love collaborating with you to raise emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.